Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Yuta Eichstein, who brings us 30 years of experience in the software industry. Her focus is on enabling agile development on the organizational level. Yuta is an independent agile coach, author, speaker, and consultant based in Brunswick, Germany. Yuta Eichstein, welcome to Maintainable. Hi, Rory. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm so glad, looking forward to having this conversation with you. So in preparing for this conversation, I want to talk about some of the books that you've published over the year, and we'll get to that. But first, the, I like to talk with people joining because everybody has a different perspective. But what do you believe are a few common characteristics of well-maintained software? Well, the tests that are available in all different ways. So if, if we are talking really fine-grained like unit tests or it gets bigger and bigger integration system tests, acceptance tests, functional tests, and so on. So I, I would think from my perspective, these are really the, the super important artifacts. And then there is, which is not an artifact in itself, but it ends up the way we are working on it. It's the delivery that we are doing so that we are we manage to put ourselves in a place that we can deliver continuously and therefore also when we think of maintaining the software that we really can fix stuff provide new features and all of that just with no no pain which leads me into my next question. Do you often use the metaphor technical debt in your day-to-day -day work? So the, it, it is like a key to, to keep a software maintainable because if we are not watching it, then it is not maintainable. And therefore, technical debt is something that's on our agenda from day one, actually. Kind of a problem that I see with this that even if it's on the agenda from day one, it still happens that we have areas where we just create technical debt. And that's something, I don't know, I would actually say it's, it's more a human kind of thing and it cannot be avoided. However, that should never put us off, but we should just keep working on it and ensuring that we are addressing it and that, yeah, we, for example, coming back to the earlier question, then build the tests around it so that it we can manage it and handle it. Right. And I'm, I'm really curious about knowing that there's always going to be some form of technical debt, maybe not be able to always have just an infinite amount of time to address those things. What have you seen to be some effective ways for teams to prioritize that type of work when there might be competing priorities with shipping new features or new updates, things that are more exciting to the product team than maybe reducing the, say, maybe some of the challenges or pain that the development team might be encountering due to that technical debt? Mm -hmm. That's, um, I think, a super important question because I, I think that's one of the weaknesses that I see in many teams. And it is that Often I observe that teams are complaining that te technical debt is happening out of the blue kind of because the, the product owner is not prioritizing it right. My take on it is that this means more that the team didn't take the responsibility in making clear what kind of business value removing the technical debt will bring for the product owner. So in my career, I think I have never seen kind of a technical refactoring or, or technical debt fixing or whatever. Sometimes people refer to it like technical requirements or technical stories or anything like that, that didn't bring as well a business value. Either the system is then more performant, runs faster, or we are in a better shape to implement the next features in, a, in an easier way and faster and, and so on. So there's always a business aspect to it. And I think what we really need to learn is to 
speak in a way about the technical debt so that the business side understands the importance of it. And again, I think it's really more the responsibility from the development side to provide the arguments in a way so that from the business side, it's it's kind of a, a logical thing to prioritize it high. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I've been part of, you know, various teams and lead a team myself, but I, I see times where software developers start to feel like they don't have the time and then they kind of then over a period of time feel like, well, we didn't get to that because it didn't get prioritized or I, I might have, and developers sometimes might re- recall mentioning it at some point, but maybe at that one point, the person that's kind of in, in responsible for setting the priorities for the team may have said, let's not deal with that just right now. We'll come back to that. But then maybe the developers heard that as translate that and remember it, remember it as a no, we're not, we're not going to take care of that. So they stop asking at a certain point for, say, permission to focus and prioritize these things. I always wonder about how often that actually ends up happening and the developers just stop having the conversation because there's maybe there's a lack of belief that there's going to be that someday maybe time that we can actually go back and clean that up to make our life better. But I, I hear you on the point of this being a responsibility of the development or technical team because it's it's the artifacts that they're producing for the for the business, right? And so, and I would imagine like there's people in other departments within companies that have their own sort of form of tooling debt or technical debt or, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can kind of think about that. It's really the key to bring it to the attention of the business side or of the product owner and bring the product owner in a position that they can decide what priority that has. But if if they don't know and don't understand what the impact is for the business, they can and will always prioritize it lower. So mm-hmm. it is really the development team who has to help the product owner to, to make that decision. Have you seen, you know, outside of the scenario where maybe developers need to advocate for that more, where you might disagree with what the developers were kind of labeling as technical debt and be like, well, that's not quite technical debt. That's probably something else. It's just maybe being a misrepresentation of that metaphor. Yes, I have seen that. And for sometimes also for the good, because sometimes it's also the case, but maybe even masqueraded as technical that it's actually more gold plating. And the other thing is if, we as the development team are able to provide the information about the necessity of um, removing the technical debt, then we also have to accept if the product owner then decides otherwise and says, well, but at the moment, if we are not delivering this feature, we will be out of business or whatever. And, And even if it's maybe not so good for our I don't know, morality of of being a developer or ethical something, sometimes this is better for the business than the other way around. And we might not understand that. However, this is all given that we have been able and taken our responsibility communicating the impact of the technical debt. I hadn't heard anyone use the the terminology of gold plating and related in relation to this. I, I like that quite a bit because there's, there is some, an aspect to that. I, I've also seen on teams where maybe they're working with a frit, like the, their application relies on a say JavaScript framework that is no longer the JavaScript framework of the, of, of the month or year or whatever. And it's not in fashion to be using it. It's seen as deprecated and no longer being supported and they're like, well, that's technical debt because we need to, everybody else has moved over to this other platform. We should do that too. Would you consider that technical debt or something maybe a little different? Um, I would see that different. I would see that as, well, we have to evaluate if it helps us to move on to the other framework or if it is rather better and us actually includes the client here very much so. us staying with the framework where we are using at the moment. And there can be either way good arguments 
for or against doing so. And I don't, re- I wouldn't regard this as technical debt unless the framework isn't supported any longer and it that we are using. And it means that, well, we, we put also our clients at risk, for example, in terms of security or anything like that. I think that's a, that's a good point there. You know, I want to talk a little bit about thinking about how t- software teams will transition from, say, initial architecting and building and releasing an application to over to the point where a lot of the people that I'm speaking with on Maintainable is about being responsible for the long-term maintenance of the application. So in what ways do you see the role of, say, a software architect changing from that early era of a software application to the, you know, couple, a year, several years down the road when the application's been up and running and it has proved a good market value, you know, fit and is providing value to the business. What, what's, how do you see that role shifting? In general, I regard this as a relationship between the number of changes that we are seeing plus the certainty or uncertainty we are having with the technology that we are using. Like if you start with a new product and it's really new, maybe you have really never built anything like this before with the company and maybe nobody has because it's something completely new, then it means you can expect a lot of changes and you also pretty much don't know everything about the technology. So there is also a lot of uncertainty. And now... Going to the other extreme, and there's, of course, there's a continuum, like there are a lot of um, states in between. On the other hand, if this product is really on the market for quite some time and we we know that stuff, we know the clients, we, we almost know what kind of changes are coming because we, we anticipate it based on maybe the technical debt, maybe because of well, these are kind of logical next features that we should build into the system also, then it means we are well aware of the changes coming. They are also not really super frequent and and also not coming as a surprise. And also we know the technology pretty well. And based on those two things, the role of the architect changes a lot. So like at the beginning, very often what I see is that we really are in need of good architectural guidance and also that we all then understand where are we heading so we can also change it quickly and and we need really a lot of support here. Whereas if we are in maintenance mode and we know everything, then I often see there is no specific role of an architect needed anymore, but it's more like the kind of what we always hear in an agile team, there is no architect, the whole team is the architect. And that's pretty easy in a situation like that. If we all know the system, we know the changes, we know the client, we know the technology, then I would also expect, and and really I want to emphasize it, I would expect that the team can jointly take the responsibility of what's normally like an architect's role. Do you think that there is still a good space for a software architect, someone that like really enjoys that early era part of a software project where they're mapping out? It might be a team of people doing that and then the being the same type of people that you may need down the road, or is it do you feel like there's different skill sets there and I see more the need of an architect when we're starting something new and also when we have more um, product program, product family, product line we are building so that it all aligns and so on. And so and most likely it's not a single person, but it's more a team that provides the support for all of that. I don't see that need so much when we know the system pretty well. However, sometimes there is still like in a team, like one person who is more interested in it and ensures that whatever changes we are doing, we really don't screw up our conceptual integrity or whatever. And still, I'm repeating myself, I would expect the whole team ensures that in such a state. And having someone who keeps reminding everyone is a good thing. 
yet it's not so much an outstanding role as I see it. While our whole crown is way more complex, whereas in maintenance often it's not complex anymore. It's maybe complicated or maybe it's also, well, speaking in Kinefin terms, obvious, clear or something like that. You know, I think about how teams will get into that, you know, that long-term maintenance phase. And then you're pointing out there might be someone on the team that has more interest or wants to kind of keep an eye on those types of things. And I always wonder if there are a lot of teams where it feels like maybe nobody's really thinking about that anymore because they maybe none of the people on the team now were part of then. And so they don't always even know, understand the context for, behind the decisions that were made a couple of years ago, why it is the way it is. And so they're just, so everybody's kind of like figuring out, well, we'll just keep tacking things around and, and evolving it, which is what software does. And that's one of the great things about software is that it's malleable, but also you can create a big mess too during that maintenance phase. If you're just tacking on a bunch of things to work around, maybe some of the, the short sightedness of some of the early decisions, but you're not like nobody that ever designs a system is going to get it all perfectly right the first time either. So it's an interesting like realm of wondering if it's like even the same type of people are going to be effective in both areas. So it's just, it's, I find that fascinating that we, that it's not very clear on how to make that work well at times. And, and I also agree that it does help to have someone or some ones that are going to be thinking about that at the big picture and be like, well, how we're going to add these new features that might require some new database schema things with changes we're going to make. So how are we going to propose approaching that? Do you find that when you work with, you know, different teams, that there's some teams that will do things where for any, any larger changes, there needs to be some like architecture documentation or a proposal for the team to review and kind of debate about or work and, and work on that before they implement it. Do you find that to be an effective approach or there's other ways that you find teams working through those sort of larger changes within an, an older system? Well, it's, it's probably a typical consultant answer. So it depends. <laughs> it depends on the context we're in. It depends on what kind of changes are going on and, and what kind of decisions we have to make. make so how severe are those and, and impactful and so on. Um, so one part of what, what I see super helpful in, in documenting that are the tests again because they really tell the truth. So we know if they are failing, then probably something has changed and it's not really along that path anymore we have decided upon at an earlier stage. However, that's not everything. So I see really also great benefit in documentation, especially like any kind of drawings also are often helpful to understand how stuff is playing together. So understanding the big picture, for example, is, is something that, that I find helpful. What I think is, is supportive here is if everyone ensures that these living documents that we can change them as we go and that we also invite everyone to review it or to add their comments and whatever. So I, I often feel like any kind of wiki system helps there. So most often confluence at the moment, but what people are having, but uh, whatever system you, you have um, is much better than something that's, that's more looking at something static like a word doc or so, mm -hmm. that's just harder then because it doesn't go with the with the flow and with the with how you said the good thing about software is that it's changing and it's able to change and and yeah changes the form and shape and so on and so the documentation should be able to follow along. Another thing, you know, I, I've I've had a couple of guests on to talk about the benefits of documenting or the the concern that. A lot of documentation sometimes kind of gets neglected over a period, and you make a good point of it. it needs to be living, it needs to be continuously worked on. But not everybody. It's always I, I find that it tends to feel like for a lot of developers, like it's an afterthought. Like oh, and after we make this decision, we're going to go document it, and then well, the changes we made, or uh, maybe they had the proposal and they, they went to that. For, for teams that don't have that sort of discipline baked in. And just go, you know, straight into code and try to figure it out. And they're like, oh, if we get some time, we'll go back and update the documentation because we made some changes to it. So 
one problem that I often see with that, why that behavior is, is something we can observe is that people sometimes think documentation has to be proper. You know, it has to be clean and, and looking nice and whatever. And that's why a system like Confluence is often helping there because it's more, at least in most cases, motivating that it's okay if it's in a draft state and it stays in a draft state and it's more like um, supporting whiteboard discussions and this is what we are having there and it's not an after-the-fact documentation, which actually is something that might be, well, maybe not, might be easier right now once we are, while we are remote because we are working with systems like that anyway. So it is it is all documented. And I just said like, maybe not because the difference is really that you, uh, if you are working on a whiteboard and then you, you take a picture of it. And so it, it's not that difference. And, and the thing is, I just think it has to be okay for everyone that we just take a picture and this is, the documentation for the decision. And it's not expected that somebody is after the fact then cleaning it up and that's whatever, because as you're saying, that's not happening. And I think we, yeah, probably we have to lower the expectation that we have whenever we hear document. It has to be helpful, but it doesn't have to be clean. I think that's a, that's a, that's a good point there. I, it's in a way it's it's like there's some documentation or is better than no documentation and then i think another concern is like a lot of teams will people will join teams new team new to them teams and there's been software for around you know let's say their application's been running and they've had numerous people come and go over the years and it's like a 5 to 10 year up year old application or more and you know, when new people come to into that environment and they see that there's some documentation like they're looking at it and then they go sit down or talk with another person on their team. It's like, oh, I was looking over this documentation. Like, and then that if that developer says, well, that's actually outdated, don't ignore that. And I always wonder if that ends up being uh, a common reason for why documentation starts to fall down because the culture hasn't really embraced it or they haven't gone back and cleaned it up and maintained that because I rare I would imagine a product owner is probably not prioritizing. Go go through and clean up the documentation um, and get rid of anything that's longer relevant anymore. That's not a story or something that someone's going to get assigned necessarily on a regular basis. But it does seem to me like there could be some discussions within teams about how you do make sure that's part of your definition of gathering requirements and or what your definition of done is as a team. So I I I don't like to to say the here that it's the product owner's fault, not prioritizing right. it. And for me, the, the way that has been working pretty well is for these kinds of documentation, we really use them whenever, as you're saying, somebody new is coming on board and using that documentation finds out it's not up to date. So then while talking to people, then they are actually updating it at that moment when they figure it's not mm. updated. So it's also a kind of, um, if you will, an onboarding thing from the person who comes new into the team, as well as the people helping that person to understand what's going on. So, and this way the, the documentation keeps alive. So I want to talk a little bit about one of your books called, uh, which you released, I think a little over a decade now ago, called Agile Software Development with Distributed Teams. And I'll include the link to that in the, in the show notes. But in it, you talk about the difference between distributed and dispersed teams. What is that difference? Mm -hmm. Distributed teams is a thing that's only happening in plural, meaning we have at least two teams and one team is located on one side and the other team is located as a, at a different side. So it could be like, now I'm in Germany, you are in the US and I'm working here with a German team and you're working in the US with a US team, right? And however, the each team in itself is actually co-located, but the communication is not collocate mm. because we have multiple teams and not sitting together. Now, dispersed means that we are distributed 
inside the team. So people are, nobody's co-located. It's kind of the thing that we are seeing right now with the pandemic where nobody, well, at least in, in many companies, people are working from home. And so everyone sits by themselves and we are connecting this way. And um, so that's that's a difference which, which I think is heavy in this way because sometimes people talk about, well, we are working in a distributed way and then they have a team in the US and one in India, which is completely different than if individuals are really not co-located. You know, you touched on that we're, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. And so let's just assume that a large portion of the people in the, in the audience might have now find themselves in the dispersed team approach. And that wasn't something that they were doing like a year ago. Right. And so there's, there's been people working remote and in that capacity for a long time, but there's a lot of people now working in a dispersed fashion. So I know I've spoken to a lot of people that really benefit from that in-person collaboration and are now struggling to, you know, with how they're finding that, like say real-time communication over tools like Slack are allowing them to get maybe into that deeper state of flow what do you believe teams should be thinking about to find a healthier balance between real time and say asynchronous communication? Yeah. So one thing is we all have to be aware and accept that not everyone is on and should be on all the time. Expect that I, I have the impression, especially right now that people are replying right away. And on the other hand, that's, that's not not something that's working for everyone and not something that's working for for everyone all the time so probably the the thing is it's also an in, it depends thing you whatever you need so there are also things like what we just said discussions around architecture that's much easier if we synchronize the communication and we have more kind of a workshop together, whereas other things where we more or less require information, then this can be done in an asynchronous way. It very much, in my opinion, depends on what kind of message we want to convey or what kind of outcome we expect to to, to um, make happen here. Depending on that, the communication we are choosing, so synchronous or asynchronous, is also one that's helping. And having said that, there's also the other point that, well, asynchronous uh, communication is often more inclusive because if, for example, like now, English is not my first language, and maybe if I wouldn't be as secure as I feel I am, no matter if for good reason or not, but I would need more time to think and reflect on what has been said and how do I answer and is this really a sentence or whatever that would help me as well. But also thinking of um, any kind of disabilities, mm -hmm. then it might also be more helpful to have asynchronous communication than synchronous one. So also here, again, it, it depends on the context very much. So the, well, I said already the, the message that's conveyed or the outcome we are focusing on, but also who is involved in that communication. And maybe with that as well, what's the relationship of the people who are involved? Thinking of a, a different aspect, as I said, well, it, it's not my first language, but also if I'm talking with someone where I think, well, oh, I feel like we are not on the same level here. I don't know enough and therefore I have to research and do whatever in order to really provide a good answer here. Then also asynchronous communication is helping. I, I like that you're, you're pointing out that there it is giving other people, some people an opportunity to be able to speak up where they might not have as often, say in a real in-person situation or, or even remotely, I suppose, or very, you know, whether there's disabilities or just they want to think about things more, there's not everybody's like at the, you know, shows up in a meeting and like can feel as comfortable sharing something in the moment. And some people need to, people need to uh, 
think through something before they share it. And then there's some people that'll just speak up right away, right? And like, and that, could, that could be an interesting dynamic to na- navigate for in-person meetings. And then also we move into this world where we're on Zoom a lot or these like video chat type applications or Slack where there's might be conversations that are popping up in the Slack and people feel like, well, I'm in the middle of like a deeper task right now, but should I help this person or talk to this person about this? Might seem like a big de- May or may maybe a really small change you're proposing or a really large change. It's really hard to determine that in the moment. But it's, I just I see my own team struggling with that at times, and I'm just always kind of interested to hear how other people are thinking about like, should we be trying to consciously really make it clear when to have certain types of conversations versus where's the best what's the best medium for that? And I think as you were saying though in the the typical uh, developer technical responses it depends on the context and so i think teams needing to have those conversations about which tool should we use for communic- which communication tool should we use for the different types of conversations whether we're in a pandemic or not and so i think that's the main interesting challenge but making sure that people feel like they can still sink deeper into the, the their task at hand and not feel like they have to worry about like, well, was there something said on Slack? I gotta go check on like every little message. Do you need to know about every conversation that's happening? Out of curiosity, has a lot of your experience in the software industry over the last several decades that have been been more on-site or is, have you been uh, dispersed more often in the last decade or so? Well, I always had both, but overall, I... I still feel for me as well, things have changed a lot with the pandemic because now it's it's only this person working from home, whereas other times I was traveling from one side to the other, which means being not co-located with some people, but trying to make a connection between the sites also by traveling there. So it's kind of well, and I also had clients where it was completely remote anyway, so that yeah, but I would say or think that the majority was really me traveling to the places and trying to connect people. We'll be back with our interview with Yuda in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, do you know someone in our industry who I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Ravi with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Yuta Eichstein. So I also want to dig into another topic that I saw that you've, you've talked in and written about, and that's about sustainability, in particular, sustainability of within the context of the planet. You know, so what do you believe we are needing to focus on in the industry when it comes to the consequences of our work? Yeah. That's really a topic that's on the one hand kind of new to me. I just I started researching about that maybe maybe a year ago or so. And it is a topic where most often people think of software, IT, and sustainability that well, IT contributes to to it in a in a good way because, well, for example, we don't have to travel in order to talk to each other. We mm. just use the software and this is super helpful. And therefore, yeah, software helps overcoming that. Now, on the other hand, it is also that with software, we are actually contributing also a lot to the, the pollution and to the carbon footprint. So software in itself is... Um, well, no, IT in itself, it's there's a forecast where it says by the year of 2030, IT will consume about 30% of, of the total of energy consumption, which means that we all contribute a lot to, well, that we are not sustainable here. And I think we should therefore also address that from from a perspective how are we actually 
designing the software? How are we maintaining it? What, what kind of effects do we create with the software that we are creating? And it, it's like the, the one which is probably the heaviest is if we think about maintaining a software and bringing in new features, then very often this leads to asking the clients to update the hardware. Because the new features are not running on the old system anymore, on the old hardware, which already contributes now in this case not to higher consumption of energy, well, in effect as well, but actually to more e-based, which is also a huge thing in terms of, well, being sustainable or not. Another thing is that, again, in terms of energy consumption, we can do more by just thinking of where does our software really run? So at the moment, most of the software we are creating is uh, any kind of a cloud system. So which cloud are we actually using? And what I see or observe typically is that we are looking at technical aspects of when, when we compare different cloud systems and then deciding to the for the one or the other, but we hardly look at what kind of energy is actually used by the one or the other system. Then just like one example, one of the probably one that's used the most often, the AWS, the Amazon cloud, that's completely run by fossil fuel but compared to like Google cloud, which is on zero carbon footprint. So because they have invested a lot into wind and solar power and, and all of that. And I'm not saying here with that, that well, Google is great and you should only use that. My, my point is more, we also should look into what kind of energy is actually used to drive our infrastructure and not only look at any kinds of features or maybe financial aspect or so. It should be just like one factor of the other ones as well in order, well, probably for being more aware that we also contribute to that. And it's not just steel industry or whatever. Right. I think and it's interesting. I think about how moving from a scenario where I, you know, I've been around long enough as, as well to know that at one point we used to buy servers and we would go stick them in a cabinet at a co-location facility. And so when you go take a tour of like a co-location facility, the, their salespeople would talk about the power and like some of the, like how they're, how they're all networked and their, their resiliency and blah, blah, blah. And eventually we got to, when we started moving things to the cloud, that all kinds of like the, the thought of a bunch of servers starts to get a little bit more cloudy, fuzzy to kind of imagine that they're like, oh, there are just huge server farms where that takes a lot of power and energy to, you know, to make that work. And so, but it's like, it's in the cloud. So it's just kind of like this becomes this abstract thing. You, not everybody's thinking about like, well, I have this virtual machine somewhere, you know, and so they don't think about it that, at that lower level. And then I would also imagine that you're thinking, you know, you mentioned like asking clients to upgrade hardware, we're talking laptops, mobile device, you know, phones, you know, what have you. And there's all these different devices. And I would imagine that hardware companies are trying to play an interesting game of luring you to want to use a new thing because they want to keep selling to you. Right. And, and that be part of the, 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 the challenge at hand. So I also wonder about sustainability in this, the spectrum around software development and, like when it comes to rewriting or versus refactoring code. And I always worry, sometimes I've always, I've something I've been kind of like trying to wrap my head around is how much waste there is just in terms of human brain cycle time in a way of like, if we just throw out something that's maybe a little rough now, it's like to work on, but it could be improved upon versus like, well, let's just scrap it and start over. And I feel like, well, then we're then using up too much of a different type of, um, energy as well. And is, and is that for the better, greater good of what we should be focusing on as an industry or? Yeah, you're right. Also, for example, how, what kind of data are we caching? How, how many of those and looking at it, not only from the aspect of performance, but also from the carbon footprint. And I think this is just something that's a new way of 
thinking that we haven't considered yet. It, it wasn't really in our awareness. And, and I include myself here because, as I said, this is also a new topic for me. And I know that I, in the teams I was working with, we never looked at something like this. But I think it's about time that we do. It's it's interesting because there's the other you know thinking back on the hardware part of the topic and 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 you can apply this to software as well, but I, you think about like cities are constantly evolving and iterating and on themselves in a way when it comes to buildings and like a house like you don't expect to have to buy a new version of your house every few years you make improvements to it and you know but with software because I think as it's being perceived as it's very malleable throwawayable type of thing that we treat it in a very different way than we would with anything more physical, but except maybe electronic devices that we're like always happy to, you know, buy a new version of or something. You know, also another thing I wanted to quickly touch on with you is, you know, because on on the podcast, I speak with a lot of people who have been struggling to find meaningful metrics to measure within their team. So, you know, a few common metrics that are discussed typically are things like test to code ratio velocity like if you're using sprints or story points or something and which are lagging measurements are there leading metrics that you found to work well with any agile teams well that have so much to say about this but <laughs> starting with doing a value stream analysis and finding out where is our time really lost and very often here we focus on on getting better in shipping the system out of the door, but typically we lose the time at a completely different area. So that's the one thing. However, why I said like, oh, this is a, a huge topic is because I think a key for every kind of metric, no matter what it is, is that it should be the body who will be measured just saying it on purpose this way, that that body comes up with a measurement. So if it is the team, for example, finding out, oh, we we really struggle here and there, then and we want to get better here and there. So how can we measure in order to find out if whatever experiments we have done for getting better really lead us on the right direction or not? And I'm saying this because all too often I see that metrics are defined by other people and who who will then like a manager and will then measure the team or or something like this. And this this leads us just nowhere because if the the body who will be measured doesn't believe in like, okay, I really want to be getting better here then the only thing you are doing is you ensure that the measurement looks better than before, but not necessarily the thing is better, if that makes sense. I, I try to be as neutral as possible because it can be all kinds of things. It can be you measure a team or individual person or any kinds of contribution, and that's why I try to generalize that. Yet most often it, it ends up being any kind of metric for an individual or a team, yet if that has been defined by somebody else and not that individual team, then I think it's never helpful, no matter if it's a leading or lacking. That's a good point there. And I, I've tried to apply pet metrics on my team in the past and not had varying levels of success with that. And then I did find it much more effective to have the team think about, well, what sort of things are we wanting to keep kind of track of or keep score of, to you know, if we're better today than we were like six months ago and like what what would be some ways to do that i think sometimes it's hard for without i know i haven't been on teams in the past where i had found there to be useful metrics that were used so it's it's hard to like kind of one of the reasons i was asking was like to give people some ideas for types of things that could be measured as an example may not be applicable to their team but i'm always trying to like is there some better examples outside of like well what's your code to test ratio or what you know how often are you shipping how many deployments and what's your uptime look like or uh, how many bugs are popping up in in different stages in different environments in your application uh, how many those those sorts of metrics again those are typically lagging but 
what do other teams use as some useful metrics for them that may just help illuminate or at least spark an idea like, oh, maybe we should, maybe something, maybe not that, but maybe something kind of like that is what we should be thinking about. Yeah, well, now that you repeated over that again, the, the test code ratio, I have really a great start with that. And I assume other people have seen this too, but we had this in, in one of my early projects, which is probably like 20 years ago, that we also came up with that idea. Well, actually, it was the QA, Q&A department. What happened then was that, well, tests went up and up and up. But when we when Q&A then started to look into it, we just found out, well, there were all the tests that didn't do really anything except mm-hmm. for calling a cert true, true. And so they always pass, of course, as well. And, the, you know, there was a lot of code in it, but nothing really got tested. And this this is one of the things where where I just think, okay, it wasn't the idea of the team to get better there. The team didn't really see an issue with this. And therefore, they just felt like, oh, there's somebody also, because at that time, they were really structured in a different way. So Q&A was really a separate department. It felt like, okay, they are controlling us anyway. And it's not that we are doing this for ourselves. And and therefore they just ensure that the measurement looks good, but it didn't help anyone. I've seen that happen too, or where if it's just too focused on the metrics, where or on on something that you could say game and and become useless, right? And that's that's not that doesn't help anyone necessarily. It creates a lot of extra noise in some ways, or just slows down your test suite potentially as well. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. Did you tell us a little bit about Agile Bossa Nova? Ah, yes. <laughs> so the Bossa Nova is my latest kit, which means it is the most recent book that I wrote together with John Buck. And Bossa Nova is an acronym, and it stands for, the B stands for Beyond Budgeting, then the OS stands for Open Space, the next S for Sociocracy, and the last, the A stands for Agile, obviously, kind of. And the thing is that we were looking at, because our clients are in, in that state as well, looking at how can a company be agile and agile really in a literal sense, meaning flexible, adaptive, responsive, fast, and and, uh, humble, all of that. Um, Humble, nimble, I meant. But humble is good too, actually, (laughs) I think. And what we found was that agile by itself doesn't provide an answer because agile only looks at the process aspect. So, kind of okay how do we work together in order to do blah blah but it doesn't look for example at the structure so which is also something that we hear often in the agile community that people say well but the hierarchy doesn't help us so bossa nova looks more at the company in a holistic way and also looking at the structure the strategy and processes as well and and looks at what needs to be changed for a company being agile again in the literal sense and if you will at the core it is well thinking beyond agile because agile in itself doesn't provide the answer and that's why we synthesize those other things in and at the core, and this is then again familiar to agile people, is you need to keep experimenting or how we call it, probing. So hypothesizing about what could be happening if we would change that 
for the better and then come up with experiments and also measure them and see if you're on the right track or not. So for those listening, you know, if they're using um, some agile principles in their day-to-day software development work, but other departments in their company maybe aren't or, or they're experimenting with that, uh, this book and the kind of the work that you're doing kind of speaks to how those other departments and other as a business as a whole could be using similar types of principles to operate their business and run their business. That's correct. And it might also have a huge effect on what, what you're doing in software. Like the, the one example, that, which is the B of the Bossa Nova, the B on budgeting, all too often I have seen problems also with software development because the budget was fixed a year in advance. Mm. And so, for example, well, that system wasn't really that much of interest anymore as we thought at the beginning. However, we still did spend the money because everyone knows if you don't spend the money, you won't get what you're asking for the year after. And so it doesn't really help the company and also actually vice versa. So we might have asked for too less and then it's really difficult to respond to all the changes that we want to make because the money is already distributed in all the different buckets. And again, that doesn't really help. So we need to be more flexible and agile with the budget as well. So it might have an effect also on software development, but you're right. So the the thing is really a holistic view on the whole company and not only on software or IT, but how can the company be agile in total holistically? So I'll definitely include a link to that for, for for those listening in the show notes, so you can learn learn more about Agile Bossa Nova, you know, in the new book that she just co-wrote and re- released recently. So with that, my last few questions: one, is there a non-software slash technical related book that you find yourself recommending to people in the industry on a regular basis? Well, the one book that I found most impressive, which I've read in like the last year or so. That was um, Invisible Women, which talks about the gap in data we are having and that lead to that a lot of stuff is built in a way that it's supportive for men only and not for women. And I'm not only saying that because I'm a woman myself, but also because it's it brought to my awareness, and I should be aware of that myself too, is that very often also the products that we are building, well, we are just not thinking diverse enough to really make it possible for everyone to use it. So that that also brings us back to what we discussed earlier in like making it more accessible. For example, if you are having disabilities, also when we talked about um, synchronous and asynchronous communication, so bringing in different perspective and being aware of that this means also that the product needs to be different. Excellent. Thanks you so much for that. So where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development and agile online? Probably the best is finding me on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is just UtahXTein, so one word. Um, then I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm not as active on LinkedIn as I am on Twitter, but I am active. And then also my website, so the one is um, jxstein.com. We probably can also provide a link, and the other one is the edgeofbosanova.com website. Well, excellent. It's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Utah. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Thank you.